This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. My name is Elon Dubrovsky. With me for another summer series edition is Brian Com. Hey Elon. Hey everybody. Do you know that we are like halfway through August, which means it's almost September, which still is like a month away from regular season hockey, but we're getting there. It's very exciting. People are starting to plan their drafts. ESPN and Yahoo are going to be opening soon. Apparently the date for Yahoo is like August 20th. That's what I hear. And of course, the Fantrax fans are listening right now and going, Fantrax is open year-round, you should just use Fantrax, 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 Fantrax. Fantrax fans are very adamant. But yeah, it's very exciting. It's it's coming up, and we've got a fun episode today. We are going to talk about players that we think have gained and lost keeper status in standard fantasy leagues. We're talking about the guys who maybe last year weren't quite there in our minds and now are like for sure top two, three rounds. And then on the other side, people who were players that you were thinking you would draft really high, but now we're thinking not so much anymore. We've got a fun list of players to talk about. Before we get to it, Brian, why don't you remind our listeners about our little project that we're doing? Oh, I'd love to. We are starting the best fantasy hockey league ever. The Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey League. It's for patrons only it's a perk for those who donate at five dollars it's going to be the best balance of fun and competition that you can possibly find in a keeper pool elon you and i will be competing and like our patrons are like without a doubt the most dedicated fanatical fantasy hockey players so when you join our pool you are going to take on the cream of the crop and really get the chance to prove your fantasy hockey medal. It's going to be so much fun, and I can't wait for it to get started already. I know, right? So yeah, if you're interested in joining, just go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Sign up to be a patron. All the instructions will be given to you from there. Just go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. But okay, enough shameless plugs. Let's get on with the show. Maybe before we start, Brian, do you want to give a quick overview of what you're looking at when you decide if a player has made the jump from a regular fantasy hockey player worth owning to a keeper, like a must-keep? 
Yeah, it's a fine line to figure out who is worth keeping and who isn't. And that fine line is where, you know, a young, exciting prospect turns the corner into a reliable NHL regular who is scoring keeper-worthy numbers. So, for example, last year, we talked about Nathan McKinnon and how, you know, he's a really exciting guy to watch and great things in store for him in the future. But is he a keeper in, like, a keep four or keep five league? Probably not, and luckily we were right on that one, at least for last season. So we're looking at a guy who has an established, you know, two or three years of history behind him, or just has so much pedigree that, you know, if you don't make the leap and keep him right at the start of his career, then you will never get that opportunity. Eric Carlson would have been an example of that sort of player in the past, and perhaps Connor McDavid is an example of one of those guys in the present. So when I'm looking at who to keep, I'm looking at, you know, two or three years of sustained production and right in in the proper wheelhouse in terms of age. I generally think most players are rounding into form, at least as forwards, around 25 years old. And then you've got a good, you know, three or four years of in their prime production from those guys. Yeah, and I feel like it's worth mentioning, like a guy like Nathan McKinnon, depending on your league, maybe he is a keeper at this point, just because you want to lock him up and you won't get another chance ever again. But we're talking about people who we think are going to be reliable to get you that 70, 80 points, you know, an elite player and which players have jumped into that status. So we're not to say you shouldn't be keeping Nathan McKinnon if you're in a keep four league. Maybe you should be depending on if you plan to contend next year or if you're thinking more to the future. But for next year, I guess at least last year, Nathan McKinnon wasn't a top 50 scorer in the league. And the guys we're going to mention now are ones that we think are locks to be there that maybe weren't such locks last year. Let's get started. The obvious name that we have to throw in there because this guy is being ranked in like first round rankings when you're seeing the new fantasy hockey rankings coming out. Actually, I'm going to reference the Hockey News Top 200 Fantasy Players, an article that just came out last week by Matt Larkin. And the guy who he has 14th overall is Vladimir Tarasenko. And to give some context, maybe you're thinking, oh, it's so obvious. Of course, Tarasenko. He's not new elite. Like, yes, he is. I'm looking at my draft results from last year for one of my leagues. And Tarasenko was taken in round 15. So you could say maybe the people in my leagues are idiots. And that makes me an idiot too, considering I had a draft pick in that round and I took Alex Seven. That's the league that Brian and I did together. Oh, Brian. That was definitely my call. We'll save Tarasenko. But yeah, clearly last year Tarasenko was an up-and-coming prospect. Now people are considering him a first-round guy. What happened? Like, how did he jump so high in one year? Going into last season, he was coming off a 43-point in 64 games campaign, which is really good, right? He was a rookie that year. And then last year, 73 points in 77 games. He basically jumped up to being a points-per-game player. He was on the power play. He was tearing it up all season long. 37 goals, I should mention. And even though he actually doesn't have the sample size that we've been just saying that we wanted someone who jumps to elite status, maybe he's the exception because everyone's ranking him in like their top 15. Brian, what do you think about Vladimir Tarasenko? Does he belong so high? Well, true. He did only have that one full elite season, but the one before that was not too shabby either, Elon. Like you mentioned, 43 points in 62 games as, you know, sort of a rookie-sophomore hybrid, and the NHL is pretty good. And look at what he was able to do last year. He was able to essentially carry a line, and of course, not to take away from Laterra or Jaden Schwartz, but Tarasenko 
was the STL line. If you took him out of the equation, that line was going to struggle more than if you took any of the other ones out of that equation. And I mentioned more than one year of doing well. And if you look at over the last two years, all regular forwards in the league, he is ranked fifth in points per 60 minutes. But Elon, do you know who's ranked sixth? I do not. Andre Palat. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, that's surprising, actually, because a lot of people consider Palat to be sort of the third wheel. Like, not that he's a bad guy to own, but definitely you hear Johnson and Kucherov mentioned above him in most rankings. So it's surprising that Palat is so high. Good for him. I don't know if I'd call him elite yet, but maybe in our next episode where we're going to talk about sleepers or people that are not ranked as high as they should be, maybe Palat will be there. Yeah, actually, Elon, that's what I was sort of getting at, is which of these two guys in similar situations, both playing on some of the best lines in hockey on a really great team, why are they close, say, in points per 60 minutes in terms of the overall rankings, but our conception of them as a keeper or high-end draft pick are totally different. And the difference to me comes in goal scoring. And of course, I'm looking at even strength rates to look at this stuff, but in terms of goals per 60 minutes, Tarasenko ranks up at 7th in the league, Palat is down at around like 105, and if you look at shots per 60 minutes, Tarasenko is just outside the top 20, and Palat is way down at like 120, or something like that. And I mean, even if you are just looking at straight points per 60, if you happen to be in a straight points league, there's actually like a fair gap between 5th and 6th. You've got like Ben and Getzloff right at the top, and then there's a gap between them and the next two, who are Perry and Sagan, and then there's a gap between Sagan and Tarasenko, and then it really sort of flattens out. There aren't big gaps between any of the spaces anymore, so you could still characterize Tarasenko's production in that sense as being adequately elite to be considered a keeper player already at this point in his career or a really high-end draft pick. So, Brian, this list that you're saying, this is points per 60 minutes, like even strength or all, all situations? Even strength over the last two seasons amongst regular forwards. And Sidney Crosby's not in the top five? Good question. He's there at eighth, but essentially tied for sixth with Palat and Malkin. And maybe just to remind people, why do you use points per 60 minutes even strength as opposed to all situations? Like, don't we care just as much about how they're doing on the power play? Sometimes power play points are worth more in fantasy hockey. You know, Elon, that's a really good point, and I can't totally justify it. When I'm trying to figure out if a player is better than another player, I'll look and see, you know, who has the greater proportion of their points coming at even strength versus on the power play. Because power play time, even over the course of an entire full season, it's kind of a small sample and you can't really gather a ton of it. There's room for year-to-year aberrations. But hey, we're looking at a two-year sample here for Tarasenko, so we probably can expand it to all situations for him. And because of the fantasy relevance of power play points, maybe I'll do that, you know, as the show continues this week. So leading the NHL over the last two years in all situations and points per 60 minutes, Sidney Crosby. Good work, Elon. And where does Tarasenko rank there? Tarasenko is at seventh. He's really pretty much close to Getzloff and Perry. He's above them. John Tavares is the guy who's on one rung higher than Tarasenko. But, like, that's amazing to be seventh in the league over the last two years as essentially a new player to the NHL. He came in in his second and third seasons and has already established himself in both those seasons combined as being an elite point producer. And just for context, one of the only players that is about the same age as Tarasenko and as high on the list is Tyler Sagan. Aside from him and maybe one or two others, the next 
bunch of guys are all older. Like, they have had the years of their prime to make this number. They didn't just jump into the NHL and put this together, which is why I am so high on Tarasenko. So in that case, I'm curious, like, how high exactly are you on Tarasenko? Like, now we've confirmed that we agree that he's a top, let's say, 15 guy. You want to draft him in the first round of your pool. But, like, let's say if you're deciding between him and Corey Perry in a redraft league, who would you go with just for next year? And I mentioned Perry just because I see he's ranked a little bit higher, but basically close to him on this Hockey News article. And he's the kind of guy I think that would be interesting to compare because he's sort of, like you say, near the end of his prime or at least in the middle of his prime as opposed to Tarasenko who's just entering it. Who are you more confident in in terms of total point production? That's a good one. And they're both right wingers just at different stages of their careers. You know, I feel like I'd be more excited to cheer for Tarasenko and the difference between the two might be small enough that that would be how I make the decision. Who would I rather cheer for? Who do I want to watch highlights from? Who do I want to see score goals? I'd probably say Tarasenko. I know that's not the greatest reason or the type of reason that you're used to hearing from me, but I think, Elon, that's a very good comparison. Tarasenko could very well be drafted in the same sort of tier of right-wingers as Corey Perry. But you know what, the more I think about it, the more I think of Corey Perry as like the safe and reliable choice. He does have a few more seasons of experience behind him. He's not terribly old just yet. His numbers are probably going in the opposite direction of Tarasenko's, but they're at the point where you know they'll probably meet somewhere along that mountain, that career arc at one point or another in the near future. So I could really see arguments for either one. It's a really good question. Well, that just shows how high Tarasenko has risen if we're talking about him in the same breath as Corey Perry and deciding who do we think will do better next season. I think the other obvious guy we need to talk about in terms of players that went from middle of the draft guys to the top couple rounds is Jacob Voracek on Philadelphia. That Hockey News article's got him now at 24th overall in terms of fantasy value. And by the way, we'll link to this article in the show notes, keepingcarlson.com. And in Brian and my joint pool last year, he was drafted in round seven, 82nd overall. So yeah, an amazing year for Voracek. He ended the year, of course, with 81 points in 82 games. So basically a point per game guy. And that's as opposed to 62 points the year before. And that 62 was his career high. Then 81, of course, smashed that record and became his new career high. Brian, do you agree with this assessment that Voracek has entered the ranks of the point per game players in the league? And then I think I have a good guy I want to compare him to in a question to you. Voracek has always been a guy that I've liked a lot in fantasy. He's always fallen a lot further in drafts than I think he's deserved to. And I've actually had him as a keeper before. So for me, this isn't much new. Although I see why, you know, there is a difference now. Last season was kind of a coming out party for him. And it was really cemented with the contract he received this offseason that pays him as an elite scorer. And you know what? He deserves it. He was a point per game also in the lockout shortened season. That was in his second year as a flyer. And in the three or four years before that, when he started off with Columbus, he did have a pedigree of somebody who was super skilled, super talented, and was just waiting to mature and find himself the right opportunity. And hey, here it is playing with one of the league's top forwards, Claude Giroux, on a really great top line in Philadelphia. Or should I say a really great two-thirds of a top line in Philadelphia? As we know, they've tried to find that third part a couple times, shuffling in guys like Michael Roffel. Hasn't done much, but that has not hindered Voracek's ability to produce. And for him, you can go clear back three years and look at his rate stats and see that he is a top 15 forward 
in the NHL. He's a proven 20-goal scorer who does a lot on the power play. He had 33 of his 81 points last year with the man advantage, and he takes a good amount of shots too, and the good sign is that his shot totals in the last two seasons are the two highest of his career, and they're not like abnormally high like you'd expect from a heavy shooter like Tarasenko, who gets maybe about 40 shots more over the course of a season, but they're still good. They're more like Daniel Sedin like shot totals, which is nothing to sneeze at. If you wanted to wait another season before really agreeing that he is a keeper-worthy player or that he should go in the first, you know, few rounds of your draft within the top 20 forwards, I'll give you that. I can understand your hesitation. But in my eyes, two of the last three seasons have been a point per game. The one that wasn't was still very respectable. I am all for Jacob Voracek being a key part of your fantasy hockey team. And you know what? I'm a little sad to share this information because I always kind of felt like he was my best kept secret over the last few years in my leagues. However, I think the cat is out of the bag here. Okay, well, thanks for sharing your fantasy secrets. Yeah, it's going to be hard this year when we do our pool, when we're competing against people who are listening to our podcast. We'll have to make any moves we want to on Sunday before the episode is released each week. And the guy I wanted to ask you to compare Voracek to is someone who I think is pretty similar in his situation. I'm talking about Nicholas Backstrom on Washington. Both of them are playing with another elite player, Voracek, like you said, with Giroux, and Backstrom with Ovechkin. And both of them get most of their points with assists. You know, you said Voracek is a solid 20-goal guy. Same with Nicholas Backstrom, 18 goals last year. So at this point, Backstrom is 27, Voracek is 25. Who would you want between those two if you were picking for next year and beyond, just as a keeper? So that's an interesting comparison you make, Elon, and I don't know if it's terribly accurate. I mean, I know the point totals are similar. I know the assists and goals totals are reasonably similar, but I see Backstrom as much more of a setup guy than I do Voracek, and it shows in their shot totals. Voracek is capable of getting, like, at least another shot per game more than Backstrom over the course of an entire season. And this isn't to take anything away from Backstrom. In fact, last season, I spent, you know, a couple weeks on Twitter just extolling Backstrom's virtues, you know that he's been in the NHL eight years, six of those years have been point per game essentially, or better, and I don't think he gets the recognition he deserves because he is just so overshadowed by Ovechkin, but you could argue that Ovechkin makes him, I don't know, but I do know that if Ovechkin got injured, I would be more concerned about Backstrom's production than I would about Voracek's production if Giroux got injured. And that, again, is not to take much away from Backstrom. I was looking at his career with or without you numbers to see who he's produced with other than Alex Ovechkin. And, like, he's just spent, like, almost his entire career with Ovechkin. You look at the next most common forward that he's played with, and that's Alex Semin, who's been gone from Washington for a few years now. And then it's Marcus Johansson, who sometimes played on that top line. And then it's Mike Knubel. So you get a sense of just how attached at the hip those two are and how it is mutually beneficial, for sure, for Backstrom and Ovechkin. And how does that compare to Voracek with Giroux? Yeah, those guys have spent a lot of their time in Philly together on the same line as well. I'd say if you're looking for somebody who generates their own offense, if you're looking to get a bit of an advantage in goals and shots, then you can go for Voracek. But if you're just happy with assists, then you can go with Backstrom. Both power plays are pretty decent, although that Washington power play is particularly lethal. So I would give a slight edge in power play points to Backstrom. So I think you'd have to really target your categories 
And of course, which position eligibility best fits your roster too? Right, yeah, Voracek is listed out as a right wing in a lot of leagues, while Backstrom is a center. Okay, and again, just like with Tarasenko, just the fact that we are putting them in the same discussions as these elite guys show how much they've climbed. Last year, it would have been no question to draft Nicholas Backstrom above Voracek. Now there's a question mark. Let us know who you would like better on Twitter, at Keeping Carlson. Curious to know if you guys are on the same page as us or not. Maybe something that factors into that decision as I do a little more research while you're talking, Elon. Nicholas Backstrom has 77 power play points in the last two seasons. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's nuts. And for example, the Keeping Carlson League, we're going to have five skater categories. One of them is going to be special teams points. So definitely power play points being worth 20% of all of your skater value. It's good to have a guy on the power play, though, of course, Voracek is no slouch either, just like you said. So yeah, Tarasenko and Voracek are the ones that jump out to me as the obvious jumps from last year's draft. We could get into some other players that maybe have also become elite, and maybe we'll mention a few names at the end of the show. But let's go to the other side of the fence right now for a bit, and let's talk about some players who have really fallen. Players that maybe not last year, but at one point recently were considered elite players that should be drafted in the first, let's say, three, four rounds max, and now are the guys that are going to fall in their rankings. And I'm curious to know, Brian, what you think about them in terms of if they've fallen too far, where they should be ranked now. And I guess there's no better place to start than a guy who we've heard a lot of questions about, Eric Stahl in Carolina. This was a guy who, for like the last 10 years, has been a reliable 70, 80 point guy, like basically a guaranteed elite player on your team. But lately, he's been falling. Two seasons ago, he had 61 points in 79 games, and last year, 54 points in 77 games. And that 54 points is his lowest since his rookie year in 0304 when he had 31 points. The following year, he had 100. That's crazy. That was a, a big jump from 0304 to 0506. If you recall, 0405 was a lockout season. So, Brian, is Eric Stahl no longer the 70-point guy? Like, was last year just an aberration, or is it time to say that Stahl has become a middle-of-the-draft type of guy and not the top three rounds that he would have been just a few years ago? You know, it's a really curious case, and we fielded a lot of questions both on Twitter and on Reddit and in the Facebook group about Eric Stahl over the course of last season. So where does this leave him now? You know, it feels like Eric Stahl has been around forever, and it might feel longer because of all the ebbs and flows that he's seen as a member of the Carolina Hurricanes in his time there. Usually it takes like an entire career to see, you know, rise to the Stanley Cup and then the fall down after and then the rebuild. But he's seen it all and is not exactly a grizzled vet. I mean, yes, he's heading into his 12th NHL season, so maybe by those terms, but he's relatively young to hit that milestone at just a tender 31 years old that he has yet to turn, but that's the age he'll be for the duration of this upcoming season. So when people suggest that his drops in production over the last two seasons are because, you know, he's heading off into the sunset, he's in the twilight of his career... I'm not exactly buying it, but something definitely seems up. Stahl is a guy who's always been so consistent, and as other guys, you know, rose and fell out of the top echelons of scorers in the league, he's always been there as like a guaranteed 70-point guy, plus he could do more in a good year. And that's sort of the clockwork production that makes him a worthy fantasy keeper or made him a worthy keeper or an early draft pick because you knew what you were getting with him and you knew it was going to be good. But the last two seasons of 61 and 54 points respectively have shattered that trend and we're left wondering whether he can be relied upon 
for keeper-ish numbers again. So let's take a look at the numbers to figure out what we can expect from him going forward. And for starters, he suffered from the lowest on-ice shooting percentage of his career last year and the second-worst personal shooting percentage of his career, meaning that even if he and his teammates had taken just as many shots from roughly the same locations as they had over the more successful years of Stahl's career, he probably would have ended up with fewer goals and fewer assists than usual. But the truth is, you know, this assumes that he took as many shots, but he did not take as many shots last year as he historically has. And same thing goes for the year before, for that matter. That's a common thread in these two seasons of struggles for Eric Stahl. They are the lowest shots on goal totals of his career. But here's the funny thing. His rate stats for shots, so his shots per 60 minutes was actually an improvement on each of the last four seasons during which he did see some scoring success. So while his counting stats are down, his rate stats actually look reasonable at even strength. And that might be a bit of the rub here. The bulk of the shots that have gone missing, or at least a big chunk of them, have gone missing from his time on the power play. He wasn't downright awful at 5-on-4. In fact, his scoring rate there was right up with some of his better years, But he was way down in shots per 60 minutes, as well as in time on ice. He played about 60 minutes fewer with the man advantage than he did in the year before, and both totals look low in the context of his whole career. So here's what I'm going to be looking for from Eric Stahl this season to see if he is giving me keeper value production. I'm looking at whether he gets more power play time, whether he starts putting more shots on goal again, and whether he gets better shooting from his teammates. If he can get at least two of those three things, I don't really doubt that he can work his way back to 65 or 70 points, which makes him keeper worthy in some leagues or worth an earlier draft pick. Now, he is slated to keep generally declining, though, so if you're thinking of him as a guy to keep for a few more years, if that's the way your keeper setup works, I would reconsider for now as a keeper, strictly on a year-by-year basis. Okay, and so you're saying you're going to be looking for these things for next season, but assuming you have to draft before the season, which is how it works for most leagues, at what point projection are you going to be drafting him this year? Like, where do you think is the most likely place where he's going to land? Okay, very cheeky, and I'm just going to point out that I mentioned the things I'm looking for. I think they're all attainable. More power play time, Hopefully his coach gives it to him. More shots on goal. If he steps up his game, he can conceivably do it. And better shooting from his teammates seems all but inevitable after last year's abysmal team performance. So because I see those things as reasonably attainable, I do see him, you know, around 65 points. 70 points would be really great. I don't think I'd hold out too much hope for that. I think there just might be a little too much risk to hope for 70 points this year from Stahl. And I still have hope because, you know, he's had two bad years. That's forgivable. But when it's three, it becomes a trend. And that's when I will really knock him out and say, you know what? This guy is over. But we'll see if he gets to that point. Also, if it's important to you when factoring in a player's value, this is a contract year for Eric Stahl. It's the first one he's had in a long time. It's the last of a seven-season contract. So if you think that's going to motivate him to play better hockey than he has in a while... Well, there you have it. He just might. So looking at this Hockey News article, they've got Eric Stahl ranked all the way down at 90th overall in terms of fantasy value, which is pretty low. Like I feel like if he's going to hit this 65, 70 points, 
then that would put him higher. And there's some names higher than him that I'm not sure if they've proven themselves yet. Guys like Mark Stone and Thomas Tatar and Philip Forsberg. I guess these are all young rookies, and so maybe the hockey news is giving them a bit of a bump because of their long-term keeper potential. But let's say for next season, who would you rather have, an Eric Stahl or, say, a Philip Forsberg? Like last year, Forsberg had 63 points in 82 games in his rookie season, which was more than Stahl's 54 points in 77. So Forsberg's a guy who's trending up and did better than Stahl last year. Who would you take? I wish I could take the first month of the season before answering this question, because a lot of it for me, is going to depend on whether I see him taking as many shots as the last couple seasons or more. But I don't have that luxury. So it might be some blind faith remaining in Stahl. And like, just to be clear, we're talking about guys whose star has faded a little bit, who might be dropping out of keeper consideration. And I still think there's a reasonable case to be made for that based on, you know, the fact that you might be able to draft him in later rounds than you normally would be able to because of last year's performance. But okay, if you're just trying to get me to decide between Forsberg and Stahl... For next season. For next season, I think I would still go with Eric Stahl. I mean, Carolina was just so, so bad as a whole at the start of last season. I don't know if you remember, but there was like that super long stretch where they didn't win a game. It was like 22 games or something. It felt ridiculous then. And it really just tanked their entire season. They were able to recover over the second half of the season. They put up better numbers in terms of possession and a few other metrics, as a good article by Travis Yost over on tsn.ca recently pointed out. And so I'm going to put my money on Carolina continuing to improve as a team and get better. And Eric Stahl will be an integral part of that. And so I still think he's got enough in him to at least compare to Forsberg, if not beat him out. And I know I'm going to be hearing about this one all through the season, probably. I'm very nervous about being wrong. <laughs> no, you know what? I think I agree with you. For next season, give me Eric Stahl. More guaranteed to be the top guy on his team. Though, of course, not to say anything bad about Forsberg. He had a great rookie season, and I only expect good things from him as well. That's what makes it so fun when you go into your drafts and you have to figure out how to rank these guys, the proven guys versus the up-and-coming guys. And I know that you're a bit more conservative, and you like to see more out of a player, and you give more weight to someone who has done it before for maybe a couple of seasons. Forsberg has only done it for one season, so obviously I know that you'll be a lot higher on him if he could do it again in season two. Yeah, except I also think, like, in my conservative nature that I might be really safe about Stahl and say, well, you know, he's only going to bounce back maybe five or six points. I think I'm putting my neck out there by saying he's going to outscore Forsberg. I do have a lot of faith in Forsberg to, like, still be a really good NHL player next year. He did tail off a bit in the second half of the year, but it's nothing that really concerns me. I think I'll have a good full season next year. And I don't think it's a, it's a terribly conservative thing to do to project Stahl above him. Yeah, good point. Okay, well, we'll see. Listeners, keep us accountable. Like, remind us that we made this projection, and we'll be curious to see how that goes, you know, five or six months from now. Let's move on to some more players that have maybe fallen from elite status, from keeper status. And these next two players... We already talked about them last year as having fallen from elite status, but then they jumped back. I'm talking about the Sedins in Vancouver. 
I just listened yesterday to our episode from last year where we did the same thing. We talked about players who have newly joined Elite Status and who have fallen. It's episode 30 of Keeping Carlson, if you want to go back into the archives and see what we sounded like a year ago. And at the time, we were saying that the Sedins had just come off this horrible season where they basically had 60-point paces. And then I asked you if you thought they should no longer be drafted in the first two, three rounds like they had been for all the years before that. You said that you expect them to bounce back a little bit, but that they're aging and you shouldn't expect anything major. Kind of like what you're saying about Eric Stahl, but I think that you are lower on the Sedins than you are on Stahl right now. But then last year, the Sedins ended up having pretty good numbers. Daniel Sedin put up 76 points and Henrik put up 73. So back to that elite status and guys were going to get over 70 points, 76 points in the case of Daniel. These are the types of guys you do want to draft in the first two, three rounds, especially if it's a one-year league and you're not worried about their long-term keeper value. So Brian, I'm not sure where to put this. Do the Sedins count as players who have regained elite status after having lost it? Or do you still say they've lost it? Where are you projecting the Sedins for next season? Well, there is this like unspoken part of their value. And I touched on it a little bit with Stahl that as, you know, the shine starts to wear off these players as they're getting older and they're becoming generally viewed as less valuable by the fantasy masses. That means you can wait a little longer before you pick them or you might not need to keep them to have them on your roster next year. So there is that that part of it. But let's move past that just a little bit and talk about how the Sedins Yeah, they're bouncing around. And I'm going to actually separate the two. I know that's sacrilege, but it's what I'm going to do just to take a look at their numbers and I'll bring them back together. Don't worry. Let's start with Daniel, who made everyone forget about that terrible season he had two years ago by posting the highest point total of his last four seasons, which is not too shabby for someone who's heading into this season nearly halfway to 40. The concern that remains for Daniel, though, is that his goal-scoring touch specifically is a thing of the past, because before the lockout-shortened season, Daniel strung together six consecutive years in which he scored 29 goals or more, but in the last two full seasons, he has just 36 goals combined. So even with that successful year last year, his goal-scoring totals weren't quite up there with the best years of his career, and, you know, that's what we'd expect, and unfortunately, that downward trend is likely to continue as he gets older. Even though his ice time has remained reasonably steady, his rate of goal scored per 60 minutes has pretty much been declining for the last four seasons. In terms of shots on goal, he hasn't aged nearly as badly, but if you combine a drop in shots with a markedly lower shooting percentage over the last three years of his career, and you see a player who just doesn't convert shots to goals the way he used to, and also isn't taking as many shots as he did when he was better at converting them into goals. So that's my concern with Daniel. If we turn our attention to Henrik, he's never been much of a goal scorer or a shot taker. In fact, the last two seasons, Henrik has registered fewer than a shot and a half per game. That said, he also had one of his best seasons in recent memory, like you said, Elon, and much of it is actually thanks to his 18 goals, which was his highest goal-scoring total since 2010-11. Those goals, however, did come on the back of a high shooting percentage, which isn't terribly rare for Henrik. It does fluctuate up and down pretty regularly over the course of his career. But this one in particular was kind of abnormal for him to be shooting almost 18%, and I would not expect goals to keep coming at that rate. 
But Henrik has never been a goals guy. He's been an assist guy. And all of his rate stats have been in decline for about five years now. But the one that has persisted the most through all that, that's been resistant to father time, has been his bread and butter, which is primary assist. He is great at passing the puck to a player who is able to put the puck right in the net. But that is also in jeopardy for Henrik as Daniel's scoring ability declines because Henrik's assist count is going to go down in tandem with it. The thing with the Sedins is that they both saw a great proportion of their 5-on-5 success last year with Redeem Verbata. And a lot of their fortunes over the next season or two could depend on how the Canucks set up their lines. And if they want to spread out offense, then Verbata is probably bumped to the second line. And they might be playing with, I don't know, Alex Burrows, who they've played with a fair amount over the last few years. But their numbers with him are not nearly as good as they are with Verbata. Let's not kid ourselves, the Sedins can still score with anybody, and they're still going to be leaned on heavily by the Canucks to score, but Verbata is the only other bona fide top-end converter in Vancouver. If they play with anyone else for too long, it will temper their totals. So if you take into account their age, their declining numbers, the lack of a third part of their line if Vancouver you know, sets up their roster in a certain way. To me, that means that you can probably risk taking them a round or two later than you would in the draft. I don't think they're like a guaranteed first or second round pick again, just because of the fantastic year that they had last year. Yeah, I guess it's pretty rare that you're having a conversation about someone losing their keeper status when they had 76 points the year before. But I agree with you, Brian, that the general sense is that they're going to decline. And yeah, maybe though they could make sleeper traffics. This is exactly what I said last season, actually, on the podcast, that maybe you could grab them late if people aren't going to want them because they're nervous about how old they are. And they still should, you'd think, be good for at least like 60, 65 points if they were able to get, you know, closer to 75 last season. Since I've been giving you the rankings for other players, according to this Hockey News article, they've got Daniel Sedin at 68 and Henrik Sedin at 81. And Henrik is right around Andre Palat, who's number 80 in the list, which is interesting. I just see him right above him, considering you mentioned how well he's been doing in terms of assists. And I guess they'd be a good comparison. Who would you want, Brian? Henrik Sedin or Andre Palat for next season? Oh man, it's really hard when you do these. It's like old declining guy or a young guy coming up. And like Tarasenko Perry or Stahl Forsberg, I expect them to cross paths at some point, just in opposite directions in terms of where their numbers are going. I'm going to turn the tables on you though, Elon. This time I want you to answer. Palat or Sedin? Oh man, Brian, that's not how this goes. People want to hear your opinion, but I'll give you mine. I would say that Palat, looking at his numbers, he had 59 points two seasons ago and 63 last season. Again, like Henrik Sedin, both of them get more assists than goals. And Palat definitely has great people to pass to who are going to score. But Henrik Sedin, I still think overall is going to have more points than Andre Palat. I think, like you say, it's going to be close. And if it's a keeper league, like take Palat for sure, since he's going to keep it going for many more years to come. But just for next season, give me Henrik Sedin. Do you concur? You know, I think that's fair, and it could be a bit of, like, a goal assist shot thing again. Like, you know, Sedin is not going to take a ton of shots, and he's going to have a greater proportion of assists relative to the amount of goals he scores. I think it's a fair argument to be made, though, if you're looking at total points. I could see both doing reasonably similarly, although I still imagine Sedin is going to have a greater role on the power play than Palat will in Tampa. Yeah, and actually, in terms of what you're saying as assists versus goals and shots, I think Palat and Sedin are actually very comparable there. And I'm talking about Henrik Sedin, of course. 
Yeah, well, that's fair, Elon. I mean, Henrik is such a low-volume shooter that it's hard to say any top six forward in the league comes close to him. I can think of a couple, like Mike Ribeiro, for example. But Palat isn't quite as low as Sedin. You know, he might get 40 or 50 more shots on goal. But that still isn't enough to even get him to average, you know, about two shots a game. So I see what you're saying in terms of relatively low-volume shooting from both of them. And Palat's assists are weighted more heavily than his goals, for sure. And now let's move over to Minnesota for one more guy who's had a big drop in his draft value from last season to this season. Thomas Vanek. This was a guy who was pretty much a guarantee to get close to a point per game for the last few years, right? Like in his last few seasons in Buffalo, he had 73 points in 80 games, 61 in 78, 41 in 38. Then you get to that crazy 2013-14 season where he was split between Buffalo, Montreal, and the Islanders. But he ended up with 68 points in 78 games, so a really great year. Then he went to Minnesota last year, and it totally fell apart. He ended the year with 52 points, like barely a fantasy-relevant guy for most of that season. So, of course, the big question going into next season is, is Thomas Vanek like a 65-70 point guy, or is he now a 50 point guy? Like, How far has he fallen, if at all, in your opinion, Brian? Well, there was definitely some anxiety with Vanek starting in Minnesota. People were worried that he would not be the same prolific scorer that he was with past teams like the Islanders and the Sabres because they're more of a defensive-minded team. I mean, they have Pominville and Parise, and both those guys are also not necessarily producing as high as they were with their old team. So what does this mean for Vanek? The 52 points he scored last season were the fewest he's put up in a full season since his rookie year in 2005-2006, and his shot count was actually the absolute lowest of his entire career. This is a guy who you used to be able to keep or draft early on knowing that you'd get about 30 goals and 60 plus points out of him. You knew what you were getting, but now can you still count on him to do even that? Or will anybody who drafts him this year be getting fooled twice? Well, I did mention how his goal scoring was really low for the course of his career. I said how his shot taking and point producing totals were low, but there's one more career low that we haven't mentioned yet, and that is his ice time. Vanek only played a smidge above 16 minutes per game last season, which is the least ice that he's seen since his rookie year, and that actually masks the fact that his rate stats were kind of okay. They weren't great, but they weren't a huge drop from his high-producing seasons either. There were two areas where he did fall a bit more than others, though, and one of those areas was in shots on goal. He just needs to shoot the puck more. And this is something, Elon, that you and I identified very early on in the season. We saw, like, why isn't he shooting the puck? And when you watched Minnesota play, he seemed more interested in passing the puck or passing up an offensive play than I'd ever seen him look in his career. So if he can start putting shots on net, that would be a really big part of recovering his keeper or early round draft status. The other spot where Vanek saw a substantial drop was in secondary assists. And while those can often be attributed to luck, here it could also speak to the difficulty that Vanek had in breaking out of his own zone and putting up positive possession numbers, although he's had weak Corsi for the entirety of his career. So I'm not necessarily going to say that possession would correlate with production. All this to say that I'm definitely willing to give Vanek a mulligan, but not as former Sabre Thomas Vanek or former Islander Thomas Vanek. We might need to learn to live with the new Thomas Vanek Minnesota Wild forward. I mean, he was right at the top of the team with Zach Parisi in terms of scoring rate numbers amongst Wild forwards. 
But in Minnesota, that is not enough to necessarily deliver a great offensive season. They're the most defensive-minded team that Vinex ever played on. And maybe he's going to be asked to do some new things before he gets more ice time, maybe improve on those consistently low possession numbers to be able to be trusted more on the ice and get more five-on-five time. Yeah, I feel like of the players we've been talking about that might be on decline, like Eric Stahl and the Sedins, one thing you could say is they still are looked at as the top players on their team. And that's not the case with Thomas Vanek. And that really hurt him last season because, like you said, his ice time was so unreliable. Like, you didn't know if he was even going to play enough to give you those fantasy numbers that you maybe expected when you drafted him. And that's, I think, still a question mark for next season. And that's why I think he's the one of the four of those guys that I think I'm the least confident in going into next season. Yeah, and fair enough. And if he does get better, I think his route to redemption is going to be through the power play. Minnesota's power play was weak last year. And if he steps up as a guy, as a trigger man, who can really take care of business and improve that power play early on in the season, then I can see him working his way back up your draft list for the following season. But until we see a rise in ice time, I think it is fair for you to risk, you know, taking off his keeper status or letting him fall a round or two later in your draft than you normally would. And again, back to that Hockey News article, Vanek is way down at 157 amongst guys like Colin Wilson and Brandon Dubinsky. And actually, surprisingly, not too far above him is a teammate of his, Jason Pominville, at 147. And that's a guy who we talked about all last season as someone that was better than people were seeing him as. If you were drafting right now and had the chance to get Pominville or Vanek, who would you want between the two of them? Okay, that's a tough one. I think I would say that Pominville is somebody I find more reliable. Like, I can trust him for, you know, the 55, 60, maybe a couple more points that he's going to get. Whereas Vanek, it seems like, you know, we're waiting for a few factors to settle themselves out. But he does have the higher upside, in my opinion. So, do you want to go for the safe pick? Or do you want to go for the higher upside pick? And it's not like Vanek is even that dangerous. So, I think that I would probably go with Vanek, swing for the fences, so to speak. Like, this is all relative, of course. But even in worst-case scenario, Vanek repeats last season, and Pominville just had 54 points last year. So it's not like he really outdid Vanek. And it's worth considering, just again, like, what the new ceiling for Vanek is. We don't know, but we can see... In Pominville, he was consistently above 60 points, had an 80-point season, a 73-point season in Buffalo. And then, you know, his high in Minnesota has been 60 points in a full season. And Parisi, it's the same pattern. In New Jersey, at 94 points, 82 points, 70 points. And then since moving to Minnesota, he's more of like a 60, 65-point player. So I think that's where you can expect Vanek to settle in if things go well, you know, around 60 points. But forget the days when 30 goals were automatic from him. We can hope for it, and I hope they come back. And used to be able to even hope for like 35, 40 from him. Those days are behind us, unfortunately, now that he is a member of the Wild. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up Parisi. He's also someone we could have talked about as someone who used to be considered an elite guy in fantasy and now has really fallen. I guess Parisi is still the number one guy to take, but between Pominville and Vanek, they're probably pretty close. I don't know, my gut tells me that I'd rather have Pominville. I feel like I'm just worried about Vanek's role on the team while I think Pominville's for sure going to be like top line, top power play. Yeah, I think those roles are there to take if Vanek steps up, and of course he needs to be given the opportunity first. I think there's room for improvement there, whereas Pominville, I don't know how much higher he can go than 60 points in his current role with the team. 
Yeah, I think maybe the more interesting question on Minnesota, and we're not going to try to tackle this today, but maybe it would be who do you draft higher between, say, Parisi and Devin Dubnik? who is more valuable to your fantasy team. And maybe we'll talk more about Dubnik, or we definitely will talk more about Dubnik when we do our goalie, no wait, let me say it right, our Schmorgoliesborg episode, which should probably be in a couple episodes from now where we'll run down the various goalie situations in the NHL and how we tier the various goalies that will be available in your draft. I appreciate that you took the time and made the effort to take Schmorgoliesborg correctly, but you also could have said Dubnik correctly too. Ah. So close. Good effort. Okay, I'll, I'll get it next episode. But I think that'll be it for this one. We actually had some more players we wanted to talk about, so let's break that up into the next episode, where maybe we won't be talking necessarily about people who have fallen or risen into keeper status, but just overall players who are underrated or overrated going into this year's drafts, people who we think will be drafted higher than we think they deserve to be, and players who maybe you'll want to grab as a sleeper because people won't be targeting them even though we think they'll do better. Should be a fun episode. We've got some more fun names to throw at you, but hopefully you enjoyed the names we threw at you this episode. Let us know what you thought. Tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. We love to get feedback. Also, we'd always appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. Let's say if you don't want to go so far as to support us by becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson, which is, I think, a really nice deal and a really good option to support the show because for only $5 a month, you get a lot of cool perks, such as being able to join our Facebook group, getting access to our monthly patron cast, of which there's one tomorrow, by the way, heads up patrons, and of course, the option to join our awesome fantasy pool, which we'll be launching this year. But if you don't want to throw us the $5 a month, at least go over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Helps us out, doesn't cost you a thing. But with that, I'm going to cue the outro music. And Brian, I know we have some credits this week. We do. Research for this show was done with help from TSN.ca, Hockey Analysis, War on Ice, and the SB Nation blog, The Hockey Wilderness, had some really good stuff on Vanek, so I really appreciate them for sharing that. Yeah, and also we used the articles on the Hockey News and Dauber Hockey with their rankings for next season. Great job, Brian. You're on top of your game as always, and I look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Great job to you too, Elon. Thanks everybody for listening, and until next time, please keep on keeping Carl Sons.